the philosophies of this world say to you and to me that the key to living your life is to first discover yourself. Socrates is quite famous for this thinking. Know thyself. Know yourself, and then you'll know what to believe, and then you'll, you'll know how to live. Now, I'm going to challenge that philosophy in the next few weeks. And I'm going to challenge it with something very, very different. And I'm going to put forth to this congregation that you must first determine what you believe. Key to life isn't knowing yourself. The key to is knowing what you believe. And once you know what you believe, then life will have meaning and purpose and direction. If you're a longtime follower of Christ and life has lost its meaning and purpose and direction, then it's quite likely something has shifted in your beliefs. And this will be a time of renewal and refreshing for you. It's about what you believe, so let me begin the series with this question this morning. What do you believe? That's really the thesis question of the whole series. What do you believe? What you believe is what Jesus spent a long time praying about. Famous prayer of Jesus, John chapter 17, he gets on his knees, starts praying for his disciples, and as he's praying for his disciples, this is what Jesus says to the Father. Now this is eternal life. Okay, I'm interested right now. What is eternal life? This is eternal life that they know you. This is eternal life that my disciples know you, the only true God. Sometimes we say it this way, the one true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Here are some keys to life being said by Jesus right here. This is eternal life. To have a belief in the one true God. God, the Father Almighty. Now, the word creed's very unfamiliar to evangelical Christians. I get that, and this will be a little difficult for you to assimilate into the creed world. Uh, creed is unfamiliar to evangelicals, so we need to spend a little time today, by way of introducing the series, talk about what is a creed, because that's not part of your language as an evangelical. I'm looking at Sarah down here. It's part of her language. She's raised Catholic, so it's part of her language, and it's not part of some of your, it's not part of Letty's language. She's raised Baptist, and so we kind of have to come together in common ground because outside of Sarah and, and maybe Dolores and a couple of others, only a few people know what a creed in this context even is. The English word creed comes from the Latin word credo. So Latin credo is how we get, one of the ways we get our English word creed. The Latin word credo simply means I believe. That's all it means. If you said, what's your credo? Somebody's saying, what, what do you believe? And if you were to say, this is my creed, you're basically saying, I believe, fill in the blank right here, okay? Creed means I believe. So if we say we're going to study the Apostles' Creed or we're going to study a Christian creed, it's going to be something about what people 
believe in this context what Christians believe in this real context what the apostles taught us we should believe uh, Christians in the early centuries in the 100s and 200s and 300s and 400s and 500s Christians in the patristic era after the apostles in the, in the days of the church fathers the next generation after the apostles in that age when Christians were preparing for baptism uh, to, to be a part of the early Christian church they uh, had to memorize a short summary of what Christianity believed, what the Christian faith believed. And they called that summary of Christian belief the Apostles' Creed. So, what does the Apostles' Creed say? I guess this is really what we need to talk about this morning. As we study the Apostles' Creed, let me just tell you what you're going to find when you engage with it. Uh, uh, the Apostles' Creed is built in three sections. The three sections of the Apostles' Creed are built around three I believe statements. I believe God, the Father Almighty, Creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord. I believe in the Holy Spirit. It's built on three I believe statements. And it becomes to us then a Trinitarian statement. One of the things you believe as a follower of Christ is you believe that God is a Trinity. Are we all together this morning? And so the Apostles' Creed, the Christian Creed, says it's Trinitarian. God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that's the way the Bible has described God. That's what Jesus taught. That's what the Apostle, and that's what got passed to us. I believe in God the Father Almighty, Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord. And I believe in the Holy Spirit. Now further, those three sections also mean something different to us. The three sections become a, a, a catechesis, a primer, a summary of our beliefs in that I believe in God the Father. Listen to this, creator of heaven and earth. The first section talks about creation. I believe in Jesus Christ, His Son. The second section talks about your redemption, how you get saved. The third section, believing the Holy Spirit, talks about sanctification, how you're supposed to live after you become a follower of Christ. So the creed basically is a Trinitarian statement that contains three major aspects of our belief, how we got here, creation, redemption, and sanctification. The creed basically then tells us where we came from, how we get saved, and how we're to live after we get saved. How simple is that? So let's talk about how, how the creed was used. The creed has been used for 2,000 years now of Christians. And it's used educationally. Uh, it's used in the discipleship, uh, an educational tool in the discipleship process. Here at Cornerstone, you guys are very crystal clear on what the mission of the church is. The mission of the church is to go and make disciples. Okay, And so it became a catechism. A, a primer, a tool to use in training new believers. Leading up to the baptism moment, new believers would memorize the Apostles' Creed and they would go down into the water and they would be asked, uh, do you believe it, you know, in God the Father? And they would say, I do. Do you believe in Jesus Christ? I do. Do you believe in the Holy Spirit? Or they would recite the Apostles' Creed 
And sometimes they would start with, I renounce Satan, I believe in God, and they would start that way. And they would say the Apostles' Creed, it was part of the baptism uh, a, a process. And that threefold co- confession that every believer memorized. Now, just imagine this, some believers could read and write, some were illiterate. But in this moment, all of the church was tied together because both the literate and the illiterate, when asked, what do you believe? The literate could say, I believe in God the Father. What do you believe? The slave who is never educated could say, I believe in God the Father, the Almighty Creator of heaven and earth. They could all, they all had the same confession, not because it was written in a book, because at that point, every baptized believer had it written upon the book of their heart. How cool is that? And it tied the whole church together with a common understanding of what the Bible was teaching. Uh, as I said already, the, the creed was used educationally. It was also used sacramentally in the baptism where people would confess. Uh, in other words, when we do baptism as evangelicals, the baptizer does all the talking. You know, uh, you know Johnny, you believer in Jesus Christ. Okay, good, Johnny, and, and the one doing the baptizing is the one making all the confession for the one being baptized. In the old world, it was not necessarily this way. The people being baptized made a lot of the confession themselves. Now imagine how baptism would look different if we had held on to this tradition. We'd go into the baptismal waters, and I'd say, Johnny, do you believe? And you'd say, yes, sir, I do. Oh, Johnny, what do you believe? And he'd just start ripping it off. I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his son, uh, uh, our Lord. He'd just take off. And we'd say, whoa, 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 Johnny. Way to go, man. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I baptize you in the name. Listen, threefold confession matches a threefold baptism. I baptize you in the name of the Father. The creed is Trinitarian. It matches the Trinitarian baptism that we practice so uh why don't baptists use uh, and other evangelicals use creeds i think this is something i want to wrestle with with you for just a minute how is it that we are handed a tradition how is it that 1700 years of christians practiced what i'm talking about but now we get to this age and all of a sudden christians have no idea what we're even talking about when we say creed apostles creed or or, or something like this. What happened? Let me see if I can give just the briefest explanation that I think I can give. Because we come from many different traditions in the room, in other words, we are descendants of people who through our upbringing, we were exposed to different, different traditions of Christianity and some of you different traditions of other faiths. Some people come through Hinduism and Buddhism and other isms and then become believers of the one true God and Jesus Christ, his son. And so we come from many different ways. But mostly in America, we come from many different, either just an unbelieving family. Their religion is, you know, apple pie and American flag or whatever. And, and we come from different traditions here of, of Church of Christ, Catholic, Assembly of God, Pentecostal, uh, Independent Baptist, Southern Baptist, three or four other flavors of Baptist. We have Methodist Wesleyans in the congregation today. We, we have people from, from Lutherans. And just we're, we're Presbyterians. We're mixed up people. And what is true of the people in this room is also true of the people in these neighborhoods around us. That's a pretty good reflection. And because we come from many different traditions, I can speak for my tradition. 
you can speak for yours. And when I speak about my tradition, my tradition didn't use creeds. We were not creedal people. The Baptists are not creedal people. Uh, my tradition had a knee-jerk reaction to anything that might be connected to the Catholic Church or European Protestants. Now, I'm just being all cards on the table, okay? Now, whether it's right or whether it's wrong, or what, my, my tradition just has a definite breakout-in-hives reaction to anything that might be connected to European uh, Christianity. So, let me just give you a couple of examples. Uh, European Christians talk a lot about Mary. Okay? For those of you who were raised in my tradition, you barely know who she is. She shows up at Christmas, and then you never, you never hear about Mary for 51 weeks of the year after, after that. Uh, they have a lot to say about Mary. Why don't we talk more about Mary in our tradition? You realize she is essential to God becoming human. Do you know Luke can't write the book of Luke? Everything you know about Christmas didn't originate with Luke or Matthew. Mary had to sit down with them and tell them. Okay, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel appeared to me. Where do you think they got that information? Mary gave them that information. Mary was like a mother to the church fathers. Is that fair to say? Mary was like a mother to the apostles. When Jesus died on the cross, he says, take care of my mother. This is John, John, Mary, this is your son and this is your mother. You, you care for her, John, and I trust you as my best friend to do that, okay? Do you think John did that? Do you think he did a good job of it? I think he moved Mary into his house and took care of her till she died. That's what I think. And uh, that's what the traditions say. And, and John went to plant the churches in Turkey, in Asia Minor. Mary went with him. And, and, and it was on. Listen, she's the, one of the most prominent figures of the early church. Why don't we ever talk about her? Go ahead. Be honest. Because the Catholics do. And we're not Catholic. Yeah, that's it. Let me tell you what, that's not godly. <laughs> that's not right. Something's wrong with that when we act that way. And I just want to say that's one of a million. You know, the, the, the European Christians use wine in communion. So therefore, if you touch a drop of wine, you're going straight to hell. Do not pass go. Do not even get $200. That's what we teach in America. You know what I'm saying? It's just, it, and I could just rant for hours about this, Okay. It's true about creeds, it's true about liturgy, it's true about the way we structure services. If it smacks of European Christianity, we run as far away from it as possible in, in our traditions. You're going to see when you start going through the creed, and the, oh, you'll see here at the end of the service when we read it together, uh, there's a line in the creed that says, you know, I believe in the Holy Spirit, I'm believing in the resurrection, I'm believing in the return of Christ. I believe in the Holy Catholic Church. Catholic if you look it up in a dictionary, means universal. In the original creed, it's not, a, it's not the Holy Roman Catholic Church. When the early Christian, there was no Catholic Church when this all started. And when, well, there was, but with the small c. And so when the early Christians came together, here's what they're saying. I believe in the one true church. Let me ask you this. Did Jesus start the Methodists, the Baptists, the Church of Christ, the Pentecostals, the Lutherans, Episcopalians, and the Anglicans, and on the day of Pentecost, ejected them all out 
you know, how many churches did he start? And that was what the apostles and the early Christians believed. There is one true church, and they don't worship Isis down there. There is one true church, and they don't worship the emperor of Rome. There is one true church, and that church is marked by a certain set of beliefs. I believe in God the Father Almighty, in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, and I believe in the... There's the one true church being articulated. This is their belief system. So I don't want you to have this, you want to heave, when you get to this line in the Apostles' Creed where it says, I believe in the, Holy, in the Catholic Church. It doesn't mean Roman Catholic. It means I believe that Christians should be unified and God never intended for us to be fractured in a million different pieces. That's all it means, okay? So don't freak out about that. I've discovered in my journey now, having preached the gospel about 30 years, that many of the American evangelical practices are nothing more than overreactions to something that was quite common in Christianity for more than 1,700 years of European Christianity. Today, in our culture, we are skeptical about everything from the past. We are in the mode now of challenging anything that comes from the past. And I'm not saying past things don't need to be challenged. Some of them definitely need to be challenged. But we have fresh challenges to the validity of anything that has been handed down to us from a previous generation. In this generation, we assume that the truest things are the things we say. This is American individualism running at its best right now. We assume that the truest things, the truest words, are the words that we are saying, not the words someone told us are true. Yet we find ourselves in a big conflict because if I asked you to write down all the words you said in a week and we were to examine your words and I were to examine my words, every one of us would have to confess that most of our words are trivial and fleeting and amount to absolutely nothing. It's just nonsense talk. Amounts to absolutely zero. But these words we are talking about, the creedal words, are true words. That's what I want you to hold on to. Not all of your words are true words, but these words are true words. When I say to you, I believe in God the Father Almighty, the creator of heaven and earth, something deep in your soul should bear witness with that and say, Amen, that's true. I believe that's true. These words are true words. But even more, these words are words with roots. Roots that connect you to the original, authentic community of Jesus Christ. To say the creed and confess the creed is to take a stand that is starkly countercultural. When you say the words of the creed out loud, you have taken a stand against this world. Not in an obnoxious way, not in a, you know, defi- but in a, in a way that says, I denounce all other gods of this world, of money, of control, of fame, of popularity. I renounce, I renounce all and I believe in God the Father Almighty and in Jesus Christ, His only Son. I, when you're saying those words, you're going against the culture. And I think now we're ready for a group of Christians to begin to stand up and go against the culture. Amen. 
I think we are there. I think it's time for something like that to begin fresh in the churches of Jesus Christ. These are words with roots. They are words that are countercultural. When we say these words, we're not expressing our individual theologies and our individual views. When we say the creed, we are joining our voices to millions of Christians of every race and every kindred and every tongue and every creed all the way back to Jesus Christ. The fact that the Apostles' Creed was not a part of your tradition does not speak to the validity of the creed. It just speaks to the way your tradition tried to distance itself from past Christians. Now, if you can get past that roadblock this morning, I'm not saying your tradition's all terrible. I'm just saying the reason you don't know the creed, you've not been exposed to the creed, is because your di- tradition distanced you from previous Christians. Now listen, they didn't do everything right, in my opinion. But neither do we, in my opinion. They didn't do everything right, but I want to say this to you. 1,700 years of Christianity prior to America didn't get everything wrong either. And you say, well, I just believe in going forward. Listen, but the people in the past didn't have it all wrong either. They knew a whole lot about God. They knew a whole lot about things maybe we've let slip, and maybe it's time to rejoin hands with them and learn what we can. Why is it called the Apostles' Creed? Is it called the Apostles' Creed because they authored it? No. No, there, yeah, there is some Christian folklore out there that, you know, each apostle wrote a line of the creed and they put it together. And put, that's not, there's really a factual basis for that. It's called the Apostles' Creed. Because the early Christian leaders in that patristic year, as soon as Apostle John's about 100, you go into 100 to 500, got the church fathers. In that early Christian period, the church father, these Christians, early Christian leaders studied and compiled what the original followers of Jesus Christ taught. They were called apostles. And the church father studied what the apostles taught and believed and summarized the apostles' teaching into the essentials. You know, when you join Cornerstone as a covenant member, there's like nine essentials we ask you to covenant together with us on. And those are things no one should have a problem agreeing to. I believe in God. You know what I'm saying? I believe salvation is by faith and not of work. We ask you to agree to a certain set of things. We don't ask you to agree everybody on the same dress code. We don't ask everybody to agree on everything. That's impossible. Because we have too many different traditions coming together. But we do have to agree on some essentials. Is that fair? Okay, they distilled the apostles' teaching down to what they thought were the essentials. And I think they did a good job. So when you think about the creed, think of it this way. The apostles' creed is a summary of your Bible in about 100 words. Uh, It's not not really what I was going to ask you this morning, but it hits me suddenly. Do you think those 100 words might be worth knowing? Do you think those hundred words might be worth memorizing? Might be a fun summer project for some of us. If you could distill the Bible down to a hundred words that would explain the Christian faith and what's going on in the Bible, those might be a hundred words, about 107, I think, might be a hundred words worth knowing, <laughs> worth, worth committing to memory. And you say, well, who are the apostles anyway? These are the original, authentic followers of Jesus Christ. These are the 
people who were directly discipled, the first students of his teachings, the eyewitnesses of his ministry and of his miracles, the people who saw him crucified, saw him buried, and saw him raised again to life. That's who they are. So I expect they knew something about this. Now I have several outcomes I expect from the series, and I think you should expect. I think at the end of this series all of us will be better equipped to make disciples because discipleship is about teaching and modeling what you believe. The creed's about I believe. So I'm going to be a better disciple maker at the end of this because I'm going to be able to teach my disciples what I believe. And what I believe, well, what I believe needs to be the right thing. The truth I believe was not discovered recently. Just grab this for a minute. The truth that we believe is not a recent discovery of mankind. The truth you believe is at least 2,000 plus years old. Okay? The truth you believe is an ancient truth. It's millennia old. It's many centuries old. Okay? And believing something that's very old, the creed now ties us to the past and it ensures that we have not invented our own version of the faith. Now this is something that's a hot button with me. Because a lot of people in America who are followers of Christ and churchgoers, but they don't believe in God, they don't believe in Jesus, they don't believe in baptism, they don't believe in the church, and they don't believe in giving, and they don't believe in missions. And I'm just like, wait, you don't believe what Christians believe. How can you call yourself a Christian? Well, I am, and how dare you challenge that? Well, I am challenging that. That is exactly what I'm doing in this series. I'm challenging you and me and all of us about what we believe, because I think the creed can help give us an outline that ensures that we've not manufactured a form of Christianity about which 2,000 years of Christians would say, we don't even recognize you guys. We don't even know what you are. Or why you're, who are you people? Well, we're Christians. No, you're not. <laughs> now, wouldn't that be a shocking conversation to have with the Apostle John or Polycarp or Irenaeus or Eusebius or one of the church fathers to stumble into a church on Sunday morning and say, what are, who are you people? <laughs> I saw a cross out there and I came in. I thought I was coming into church. Who are you people? And you're like, well, we're worshiping Jesus. He's like, holy smokes, I've never seen anything like this in my life. You know? No confessions and no vestments and no candles and no, no liturgy. They're just, they would be shocked at how we are now progressing the, the Christian faith. So you may say, well, pastor's taking us all to be Catholic. I'm, already, I'm waiting for the email to come. It's going to come right at the end of the service. Pastors making us all Catholics now. Here we go. First women pastors, and now we're going Catholic. I knew. It was the slippery slope. He's leading us down. Oh, people. Uh, no, I don't intend to be Catholic. I have an aversion for many things that are Catholic. But I also have a love for Catholics. And I know there's a lot of good, saved, born-again Catholics. So just rest easy right here. What I want to be is follower of the truth. I want to be sure that I, as your pastor, am not leading you into a faith that doesn't match the original faith. I do take that incredibly seriously. You have no idea how serious I am about that. And I want to be sure that we're trying to do what is right. You know, the Bible anticipated this problem. And before the New Testament is even closed, Brother Jude begins to write about this. Just the Lord's brother, that's all. But here's what he begins to say. Dear friends, 
although I was very eager to write it unto you about the salvation we share, I felt compelled to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to God's holy people. You know what Brother Jude thinks? He thinks the truth is worth standing for. He thinks you, followers of Christ, should know what you believe and you should stand for what you believe and you should proclaim what you believe and it makes a countercultural statement to do so. And you don't have to be a jerk about it, but you also need to be bold about it. Contend for the faith. Now the Latin word for creed is credo, means I believe. The Greek word for creed is symbolon. Symbol, O-N, symbolon. The Greek word symbolon is where you get the English word, obviously. Stay with me. Symbol. Uh, symbol is, you know, a, a graphic depiction with some meaning. So a symbolon in the Greek was the word for creed. And in Greek, a symbolon was a combination of two pieces of something that you can lay side by side. And the symbolon allowed a person to verify and validate one piece because when laid down by the other, it matches the first piece. Are you with me? Two symbols, two pieces of something, and you can, lay, you can validate that one thing is authentic because you can lay it down beside the other thing and looky, looky, they match. How cool is that? So they must, this one must, this one's authentic, we know. And when we lay this one down, oh look, they match. Two, two pieces of the same thing. And that was a symbolon in the Greek language. Let, let, let me see if I can make this clear to you. You came to church today to study the Word of God with me. And you want to know what you believe is correct, don't you? But you need validation to know if it's correct. You need verification confirmation that the faith you are passing on to your disciples is the original faith of Christianity. Is that fair? And you want to know that, uh, I mean, the pastor's up here saying, make disciples, make disciples, make disciples. You're like, okay, okay, I'm going to do it. How do you know that the faith you're passing to your disciples and to your children matches the original faith? Very simple. This is what the Apostles' Creed does for us. The apostles have passed to us the creed, the symbolon. You lay your faith down next to their faith and let's see if they match. Symbolon, creed. What's your creed? Well, I believe in the initial evidence of being saved and speaking of tongues, and I believe in women wearing dim skirts to the floor, and I believe in this, and I believe in this, and I believe in this. You know what? Apostles had nothing to say about that. Well, I believe in splitting a hair 16 ways and making everybody mad and being offensive and being a jerk. You know, the apostles had nothing to say about that. The apostles had a whole lot to say about, I believe in God the Father, Almighty Creator of heaven and earth, and Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord. And I believe in the Holy Spirit and a bunch of other things we're going to talk about. What I'm saying is, we as modern Christians need to get our act together and make sure that when we project and proclaim our Christianity that we can lay it next to the ancient Christianity of the apostles and it must match or it is not authentic. You say, Pastor, why are you making changes? Because we're going to get it right, bless God. 
or we're going to die trying, to be true to the faith that the Apostle Paul and John and Peter and James tried to pass to us. And it's been fumbled. The ball's been fumbled a billion times along the way. I get it. And I've fumbled it 16 of those times. I get it. But can we not at least try, at least try to get the symbolons to match? We know that our faith is authentic because it matches the faith of the original Christians. That's how we're going to know. I think this series will help you act as evangelists. Because I think the one thing that this series has going for it is it's especially beneficial for any unsaved friends, family members, neighbors, co-workers, children, anyone who's wrestling with God and wrestling with faith. These weeks are an opportunity for you to bring them in here and engage them around the things we're talking. Take that conversation out of the church then into the restaurant or into your home and build on it some more. You've got a great opportunity for evangelism. In this series, in this series, we're going to answer all kinds of questions. We're, we're, we're going to answer questions about the resurrection and God and Jesus and the church and the Holy Spirit and eternal life and uh, and descending to the dead and, and a million other things related to the Christian faith. In the end of this series, my prayer is that you'll also be able to better articulate what you believe. That you'll just be able to say, "I believe in God," and you just be able to rattle it right off. You'll be able to articulate your beliefs, and as a result, you're going to have more confidence to share your faith. We always, see, the, the problem is, you're not really scared to talk, you're really scared to, to get the words together. It's about what you're going to say, not saying it. Most of y'all are good talkers, you talk a lot. But if I said, hey, come and say something, okay, what am I going to say? You, you see, that's the problem. The Apostles' Creed gives you the what to say and the framework for, for presenting what do you believe? You're at work, somebody says, return of Christ and, 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 and coming judge. You don't believe that, do you? Well, listen, here's what the apostles believed. Blah, 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 you know, and that's what I believe. Uh, no, uh, the creed begins with these words. Uh, stay with me now. The creed begins with these words. I believe. Here's my thesis question. Uh, three pages of notes I've circled right back to the beginning. Now, do you believe? No, no, really, do you believe? I do know this. The lives of people that have changed this world were the lives of people who believed something very deeply. Just look back at history. The people who changed the world, people who believed something. Now, it may not have always been the right something, <laughs> but they believed in something, and they believed it with everything they were. Okay, what do you believe? Now, I want to beat up my tradition a little bit, and I can because it's my tradition. It's like me talking about my family. I can do that, but you can't, okay? My, 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 my tradition uh, instructed us to talk and answer this way. I, I believe the Bible. I believe all of it, bless God. I believe that from cover to cover, including the cover. That's the famous saying of the Baptist right there. And that's the way we were taught, instructed to talk. But if somebody says, hey, Jared, what do you believe? You say, I believe it all. You know, it's just not helpful, Jeff. If somebody comes to you and says, you know, hey, what do you believe? And you say, everything in the book. Okay, that's wonderful. Doesn't help me a bit. I have no idea what's in the book. You see the problem here? Somebody comes to me and says, hey, hey Bobby, I'm, 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 pardon me, I'm a little lost here. Sir, can you help me? 
I need some directions. Well, you came to the right place. I can sure tell enough to tell you that. Because I'm all about directions. Good, because I'm lost. And I'm trying to get to Fort Worth, and I don't know which way to go. Can you give me some directions? You said you were believed in directions. Listen, I believe in all of them. I believe in left and right and backwards and forwards. I believe in north and east and south and west. I believe in every direction. They're all of God. Bless God. Hallelujah. Praise you. Can you show me how to get to Fort Worth? Listen, I believe in every... And I, Listen, if I keep on that way, the guy's going to think I'm insane. And I'm absolutely not helpful to helping him move his life forward to where it needs to be. When we're asked what we believe, we don't have to answer with a theological dissertation. We only need to answer with a few essential statements of the faith that are common to all Christians. Creeds are not meant to be comprehensive and exhaustive. Listen, please, church, listen. Resist your desire to heave out everything you know about Jesus. No, I'm not saying you're ignorant. I'm saying you know too much and you want to vomit it all out at once and nobody can contain what you're saying. You understand what I'm saying? I think you guys know a whole lot about God, Jesus, eternal life and, and, and all of this. The, the framework, though, helps us be able to structure it in about a hundred words so that it's digestible. You know, do you believe in drinking water? Yes, praise God. What if I pull out a fire hose and shot it down your throat? Beneficial? No. But if I gave you a cold eight ounces of water, you'd say, thank you very much, that helped me. That was beneficial to my life. The Apostles' Creed is concise, yet you could not claim to be a Christian and not believe what it says. It's small, but if you don't believe what's in those small statements, you can't even call yourself a Christian because this is actually what Christianity is. And what we believe matters. It matters so much that you can't go through life just saying, I'll believe whatever I want to believe. You can't go through life just saying, yeah, well, you know, I'll just figure out what I believe as, as I go. No, beliefs are far too important, far too critical because they shape who you are. So you must believe the truth. <laughs> this is the big deal. I'm not saying Americans don't believe. We just believe everything. We just believe that tides better than cheer. We just believe, you see what I'm saying? We just believe that, you know, degree is better than, you know, Old Spice. Uh, and somebody else disagrees. And, and we, we just, the, the problem is, do you believe the truth about something that's eternal? Our modern culture is crumbling because we have this sub, subjective philosophy that we've subscribed to that says this, decide who you are. Just decide who you are, and then you can figure out what you believe later. Decide who you are, and that will determine, ultimately, what you believe. Here's what Americans are saying. Just craft your own identity. Just be whatever you want to be. You just make up your own little persona, whether you want to be a boy, a girl, a brown, white, yellow, red, be whatever you want to be. Design your own person, project your own self-designed image, 
create your own internal morality. And then once you've crafted yourself, look in the mirror and you'll know what you should believe. This is the American philosophy. You are the designer and there is no God involved in any of this. Now what I'm presenting to you this morning is exactly the opposite of that. I intend to push back and reject that premise as completely false and anti-Christ. And instead this morning I want to offer you a better way of living that has to do with finding the truth that hold the world and life together. Discover the truth as revealed in the Bible and start a relationship where we can all walk together in fellowship with one, a person, who called themselves the way, the truth, and the life. And when you get into this relationship and into the Word of God, you'll discover that those truths then will inform how you live your life. First believe, and then you'll know how to live. Not design yourself and then we'll figure it out. No, first believe. And when you embrace these truths that we're going to articulate, they are the truths that 2,000 years of brilliant Christian minds found to be the truth. They are the truths that rescued continents and peoples from ages of darkness and enlightened mankind through the light of Christ's love. These are the truths we are proclaiming that have transformed societies to be greater societies. These are the truths that have lifted humanity and driven away slavery and set captives free and given equality to people. These are the truths we wake up with every morning and make us know that change is possible. What I'm saying this morning is when you believe something, it will transform how you live. You believe first, and then it will transform how you live. You say, Pastor, where do you get these crazy ideas? Well, the Cambridge Dictionary helps me a lot. I looked up the word creed. Here's what it says. A set of beliefs that influence the way you... Hmm, Cambridge Dictionary seems to think if you believe something, it will affect how you live your life. Could anybody agree with that this morning? Yeah, I bear witness to that. I think that's also what the Bible's teaching. Set your beliefs correct, everything else now will flow and work out of that. I believe that many good and sincere people are saying, I'm unhappy with the way I'm living my life. I want to be better. I know I need to make some changes in some areas of my life. Let me figure out how to redesign myself and make the changes. I want to say stop a minute, tap the brakes, because the way forward is to first stop and ask yourself, what is it that I believe? You know you need to make some changes in your life? You know there's some areas that need to be addressed. Before you rush headlong into redesigning yourself, let's tap the brakes and step back and say, what is it I believe? Because what I believe is determining who I am and therefore how I live my life. What do you believe? Now, I'm not asking you this morning, what do your parents believe? This has to be personal. I'm not asking you, what, what does the pastor believe? I need to come and listen so I'll know what the pastor believes so I can get in line. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying, what do you believe? If someone were to ask you, some, some neighbor, friend, coworker, someone you care about, if they were to come to you and ask you, you know, who is God? Can you explain this to me? What would you say? If someone were to ask you, when do you go to church on Sundays? What would you say? 
If someone were to ask you, do you believe in heaven and hell? The resurrection of Jesus? Do you believe in eternal life? What would you say? How would you answer these questions? What are your beliefs? So I don't know, Pastor. We need to know. We need to, together as a church, we need to know. And you need to know personally. Let, let me take you to the last part of the sermon now, and I want to transition to the story. I want to go back to where I was last week. Last week, you remember what I talked about? Moses and Pharaoh, and Moses' uh, mothers, his parenting. I want to take you back to Exodus 1 and 2 just for a few minutes now. And to illustrate how beliefs affect how you live, I want to pick up that story, and I want you to look again at Pharaoh for a minute. Now, when, you, when I say Pharaoh, I don't know what happens in you. You know, you should have a natural aversion to the name Pharaoh. Pharaoh is not a good guy. Pharaoh is a bad guy. And when I say Pharaoh, you should, inside, something you should tense up a little bit and say, that guy, huh? So I want to talk about Pharaoh. He was famous for doing horrible things. Let me just show you the horrible things he did. First, he enslaved people in labor camps. This is Exodus 1.11. So they put slave masters over them, God's people, to oppress them with forced labor. Slaves. Pharaoh's famous for making people miserable. He made their lives miserable with hard bondage under the whip, man. This is verse 14. They made their lives bitter with harsh labor and brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them. Say it. These are not employers giving a fair day's wage and and benefits and a nice uh, compensation program. These are slaves being whipped to death in a scalding Mediterranean sun, working till they drop dead. Not till they drop tired, till they drop dead. He ordered the murder of all those little babies, this is verse 22. Then Pharaoh gave this order to his people, every Hebrew boy born to you must throw in the Nile. I want you to drown every baby boy. Now, I want to say this, in every generation there's a Pharaoh. In every generation, there's a Pharaoh ready to oppress, ready to enslave, and ready to murder the helpless. And we know Pharaoh made terrible decisions. He was a monster. My question to you is, why did he make terrible decisions? Why did he live his life this way? Why was he a monster? The surprising answer is fear. Don't go to lunch yet. Hang on this for a second. The surprising answer is fear. Let me read verse 10. Pharaoh said to his advisors, Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, they will join the other side. They'll join our enemies and fight against us and leave the country. Why did Pharaoh mistreat God's people? Fear. He was scared to death they were going to outgrow the population of Egypt and turn against Egypt and overthrow Egypt and then ransack it with all the spoils and money and then leave the country and go back from whence they came to the land of Canaan. Why was Pharaoh living as a monster? Fear. He's living in fear. So he made terrible decisions. You know, but Pharaoh's not alone, is he? Because I want to start talking about living in fear. This should strike a nerve with every person in this room. Fear is one of those villains 
that is constantly trying to encroach back into our life and gain control of it. I'd, I'd, I'd be bold to say there's not a person in the room who in the last few weeks fear hadn't snuck into your life and tried to get control of it. Try to get control of your decision making, get control of your relationships, get control of your bank account. Get co- and you stop living by faith when you start listening to fear. Fear wants to get control. Okay, good, let's peel this onion. What's the root cause of fear? Well, fear enters your life when you think you're able to solve all the problems. So what did Pharaoh believe? Pharaoh believed in self. Wealth and control. Welcome to America. Pharaoh believed in self, wealth, and control. Since what you believe determines how you live, if you believe in self, wealth, and control, you are destined to live in fear. Do you know why our community is living in fear? Because of what they believe. They believe self, wealth, and control. Hit them with a global pandemic, it all comes crashing down. You lost control. You lost the ability to go to work. You could lose the wealth. You're no longer calling the shots. No, when you believe in self, wealth, and control, you're, you're destined to li- live in fear. Listen, I believe in this so strongly that I could take you on a history walk right now. Time won't allow it. I could take you on a history walk to Babylon and meet King Nebuchadnezzar who made horrible, horrible decisions as a leader. You say, Pastor, why did he make horrible decisions? Because he believed in something. And it affected how he lived. What did he believe in? Self, wealth, and control. Is not this my great kingdom that I've built with my hands? Is not this my wealth? Are these not my slaves? Is not all me? Self, wealth, and control. You say, well, what kind of bad decisions does he make? He took three best guys he had and threw them in a fiery furnace because they challenged his self-wealth and control. His predecessor came along, King Darius, made terrible decisions. You say, why? He believed in self-wealth and control. You say, what kind of bad decision he make? He took the best guy he had on his staff, the most loyal president, the prime minister of the country, the best guy ever, and threw him in a lion's den. You say, why? Because he wouldn't pray to the king. Instead, he prayed to God. He believed in self and wealth and control. And his advisors tricked him into passing it into a law. And now he has to kill the best people in his kingdom. I could take you to ancient Israel to meet a man named King Saul who had strong beliefs. You know what he believed? Self, wealth, and control. You say, Pastor, how do you know that? Because he lived in fear on every page of your Bible. What was he fearful of? He's fearful that King David would get his control and his wealth and his throne. And he would no longer have self-wealth and control. So about all of that story over there after 1 Samuel 17 is how Saul's trying to kill David for whole books in your Bible. Saul hurts everybody around him, including his own kids. You know why? Because he believed the wrong thing, and because he believed in self-wealth and control, it affected how he lived. You say, Pastor, it's isolated. I could take you to the New Testament and introduce you to a guy named Pontius Pilate. 
who made one of the greatest political blunders in all of human history. He will forever be famous. He's in the creed. Do you know he's in the creed? I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, suffered under Pontius Pilate. He's famous in history for being a complete jerk and making the wrong decision about Jesus. You say, why did he make that decision? I preached the sermon too many times to you. Because of what he believed affected his behavior. What did he believe? He believed in not losing your job, not losing your money, not losing your position, and sucking up to Rome. Self-wealth and control. And because of it, he had to live in fear, and he made all the wrong decisions. I could introduce you to Caiaphas and Annas, the high priests of Israel, who made horrible decisions. Why? They thought they were going to lose control and money and self-image to Jesus Christ, so one man must die rather than all of us suffer. They didn't believe in Jehovah God. They believed in self, wealth, and control, so they had to hurt others because they lived in fear. Herod kills all the little babies in Bethlehem. You tell me why. Because of what he believed. He believed in self-wealth and control. He's afraid he's going to lose control and lose the throne because somebody strolled into town on a horse and said, Where's the king? (laughs) We've seen his star in the east. His whole religious system came crashing down in that moment. He had to go kill somebody. Why? Because he had lost control. Do you see the cycle of this? If you're being dominated by fear, maybe it's because you've got the wrong God. If you're being dominated by fear, it's because of what you believe. Not because of your circumstances. Because I can take you to countless Christian stories where people were in horrible circumstances and they still carried right on. Uh, I'm saying if you're being dominated by fear, maybe it's because you believe in the wrong God. Now, contrast Pharaoh to another ancient believer just some pages before named Abraham. He's called the father of Israel, and Paul called him the father of faith. Abraham also had a challenge come into his life, a trial, a test that challenged him greatly. I want to show you two things that happened from his encounter with God, because like him, we need to get clarity on what we believe. Let me tell you Abraham's story in about one minute. Abraham prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed for a son. Sarah's barren. Now they're old people and they're praying and praying and praying and praying. And when Abraham was about 100 years old, God answered his prayer. And Sarah conceived a son and they laughed and they said, how can this be? We're old people and we're going we're gonna to have a son. God has answered our prayer. You may fast forward the story. And then the little boy grew up to be a young, you know, a little baby grew up to be a young boy. Maybe a youth, maybe late elementary, I don't know. But just a, a, a good little lad. He's strong and he can climb mountains with his dad. I know that much. Here's what I want to remind you. Abraham was somebody. Abraham was incredibly, incredibly wealthy. Abraham wielded control over part of the land of of Canaan. So God put a test in the life of Abraham to see if Abraham still believed in God the Father Almighty. Or had Abraham now gone the way of all other prosperous people? Had Abraham now switched his gods over to self and wealth and control? Here's the test. Here's what God asked Abraham to do. Let me read you the verses. Genesis 22. Sometime later, God tested Abraham and he said, Abraham. He said, here am I. And God said, take your son, your only son whom you love, Isaac, 
and go to the region of Moriah. Go up to Mount Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on the mountain that I will show you. What just happened? God just said, go sacrifice my son that I prayed for a hundred years. And finally, God, now I've got him going to be a, a youth and a young man. And now you're saying, go sacrifice him? Boy, I'd just love you to read this this week and walk in Abraham's sandals for a minute. Read this. It's 6. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac, got a bundle of wood, and he himself carried the fire and the knife, torch with fire, and the two of them went on together. And Isaac spoke up and said to his father, Father, yes, my son. Hey, got a question, Dad. Happy Father's Day. Got a question, Dad. I see I got the wood here on my shoulder and you got the fire and you got the knife. You got, I got a question. We're missing something here. Hey, where is the lamb that we're going to kill for the burnt offering? Happy Father's Day. Give that speech to your son. You talk about answering hard questions. If I was Abraham, I'd just cite the Apostles' Creed and walk away. I believe in God the Father and Jesus Christ his son. I, what do you say to this? I see we've got everything for a sacrifice, but a sacrifice, Dad. Something's a little off in this whole deal here. Abraham answered, verse 8, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. And when they reached the place God told him about, Abraham built an altar and arranged the wood and bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. And he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. And the angel of the Lord said, Abraham, Abraham. Do not lay a hand on the boy. Do not do anything to your son. Stop it. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld your son, me, your son, your only son. Abraham looked up, no doubt with tears running down his face. I'd like to have all that detail recorded. And he looked up and he saw a ram caught by its horns in the thicket. Surprise, surprise plot twist (laughs) and Abraham went over and took the ram yeah God provided a sacrifice all right he went over and took the ram as a substitute and laid it there and killed it as a burnt offering instead of his son so Abraham called the place the Lord will provide Yahweh Yara where he talked about that somewhere in this sermon God will provide for us and here is his proof Now, let me see if I can summarize this. Abraham was faced with the test. Moses was faced with the test. He said, I'm not an Egyptian. I can't do this. No throne for me. Moses was faced with it. Ladies and gentlemen, you're facing your own test too. Some of you are saying, Pastor, what's going on with my life? What's going on with 2020? What's going on with 2021? Pastor, what's going on with my life? Are you a human being? You're a follower of Christ? What's going on with you is what's going on with everybody. It's what's going on with Moses and Abraham and Elijah. It's what's going on with David. It's what's going on with Jesus and Paul and Peter and James and John. What's going on with you is what's going on with all of us. We face tests. We face trials. We face difficulties. And how we live will be determined by what we believe. So what did Abraham believe? Well, I'm glad you asked. Romans 4 says, Abraham believed God. He was counted him for righteousness. Abraham's called the father of faith by Paul. 
What I'm saying is living by faith is more than a one-time decision. It's a belief-driven lifestyle. Your beliefs are driving your lifestyle. Let me say it again. Your beliefs, not your image, your beliefs are driving your lifestyle every day through real life experiences. That means my beliefs are driving my life through sickness and health, in feast and famine, uh, you know, in, in, in high-rising economies and through global pandemics. My faith is driving my behavior and the tests are merely clarifying moments that reveal what we really believe. That's all they are. The tests are clarifying moments, bring everything into focus, of what we really believe. If you're not happy with your life, then anchor your beliefs to God Almighty. If you're not happy with your life, then renew your walk and your relationship with God the Father Almighty. And if you're trying to figure it all out and trying to outsmart the world and trying to outsmart the police and trying to outsmart your teachers and trying to outsmart your parents and trying to outsmart the virus and trying to outsmart the stock market and trying to do everything in your own power, no wonder you're living in fear. If you're trusting in self, you're destined to live in fear. Because you're not the Almighty. And you know it. And that's, you can't do it. If you're tired of living in fear, this is the solution. You see, the tests of life are not little tortures that a sadistic God inflicts on you for harm. Quite the opposite. The trials of this life are just revealing moments and growing moments. As a matter of fact, they are the watershed moments of our lives. The defining moments of our lives mostly are those scary, tough moments when we face death and, and bury loved ones and get sick and deal with economic struggle and go through crisis and have kids rebel or go through our own rebellion. These become watershed moments in our lives where it ta- our life at that moment has to take a defining course. And what I know is that God's people come through stronger knowing that their lives are founded on unshakable principles. The other outcome of the testing is that we gain a better knowledge of God. God used the test in Abraham's life to show us a clearer picture of who God is. God was really revealing himself to Abraham. That's what's happening. Wouldn't you like to know more about God? Yeah, but none of us want to go up the mountain with our son. You see the problem? Wouldn't you like to know more about God? Yeah, but nobody wants to get cancer. Wouldn't you like to know more about God? Yeah, but nobody wants to commune with suffering. Wouldn't you like to know more? And I'm not wishing any of that on you and saying that's what we should wish. What I'm saying, though, is the trials become defining moments in our life where God shows us something about himself. Because the story's really not about Abraham and his son Isaac. That really isn't the story. That's just the illustration. You see, the real story is that God is a father who has a son named Jesus Christ. And God sent his son to the world to die for your sins. And God led his son up a mountain to offer him, matter of fact, that exact same mountain, Mount Moriah, Jerusalem. God led his son up a mountain to die and be a sacrifice And Jesus was crucified there and the wood under Isaac is not so much about Isaac 
as it is the wood laying under Jesus Christ as nails are driven through his hands and his feet. What God was showing Abraham in all the centuries since is that God loves the world so much that God gave his son that whosoever believes in Jesus might have everlasting life. I want to show you something about God. So Abraham, this is what I want you to live out. And ultimately, God did not require Abraham to offer his only son. God does not require us to do the unimaginable because God has already done the unimaginable for us. He loved us so much He sent His Son to die in our place. And no, God did not provide a substitute for His Son because His Son is the substitute for all of us. You say, well, praise God, nobody has that. No, 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 no. Nobody bailed out Jesus. He is the substitute. He is the Lamb of God. Now, even today, my belief is that God is working through the trials of your life to show Himself to you, to show you what you believe is founded on a rock, and to show God to this world. And you are at your best when you are living according to your destiny as images of God, angled mirrors, reflecting God to this world and reflecting glory back to God, you are living out your very creation purpose. You were always destined to live this way and with your faith in Almighty God. Now, what you believe matters because it determines how you live. So here's my question. Do you believe? Specifically, do you believe in God, the Father, Almighty? Do you believe in the one true God? If you do, I'd like you to take about one minute right now to tell him you do. Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed. And I want you to bow before the creator of the universe right there in your heart and in your mind. And I want you to say to God this morning, God, if I haven't told you lately, I believe. I don't believe something I've made up. I believe in eternal truths. I believe in God the Father Almighty. I believe in the one true God. You should tell Him. You should love Him. In your heart, in your mind, you're wording prayers right now of adoration and praise to Him. And I want to say to anyone who has not put their belief in God the Father and in His Son, Jesus Christ, today could be the day of your salvation. If you would put your faith in the one true God. Our Father, we bow before you as one unified church right now. And our common confession this morning is, I believe in God the Father, Almighty. And God, we do. We know you are there. We know you are listening to our prayers. We know you are right here with us. We know you are living in us. God, we do believe. Help our belief. And Lord, help our unbelief when we struggle. God, wrap your arms around this congregation, Lord, and let us be champions of our beliefs. 
Not the ones we've made up, but the ones that are eternal and true, that link us to the authentic followers of Christ. God, let this be our goal. Let this be our creed. God, thank you for speaking the truth to us today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.